All right, if you take your Bibles this evening, turn again to the book of Amos. And we're going to be in Amos chapter 8 tonight. Amos chapter 8, and we're going to look at a famine in the land. As we come to the latter portion of the book of Amos, we have said that it contains visions for the future of Israel. In chapter 7, we saw three visions. Uh, the vision of locusts, uh, the vision of fire, and the vision of the plumb line. And here in chapter 8, we have a fourth vision, and it will take the entire chapter for this fourth vision. It's important to understand the meaning of this vision because it will help us in the interpretation of passages that will come, on, uh, come later on. It will also clarify some things that the Lord Jesus Christ said about himself. So we'll get right into this chapter and notice, first of all, the rotting and the corruption in Israel. The rotting and corruption in Israel. And the first thing we notice here in chapter 8 is the basket of summer fruit. You know, a day, great deal could be said about a summer fruit. I love fruit. I enjoy apple pie, peach pie, blueberry pie, strawberry pie. Those are all fruit, right? Just about any kind of fruit pie you can think of, with the exception, and maybe you would disagree with me on this, but I don't care for raisin pie. Now, of course, my favorite is peach pie, which Mrs. Thompson knows quite well, and she does a great job of making peach pie. I got the privilege of having the leftovers of the peach pie on the night of praise and pie night. And uh, I enjoyed that. I even had pie for breakfast the next day. So, uh, yet about the raisin pie. So just, why would you take a bunch of shriveled up, dried out grapes and make a pie out of it? That's what I'd like to know. For that matter, why would you want to spoil a good cinnamon roll or even an oatmeal cookie with those little squishy shriveled up, shriveled up grapes? Well, we're not talking about rolls or cookies or even pies, fruit pies. We're talking about a basket of fruit. A basket of fruit now, while I probably would prefer a box of chocolates to a nice basket of fruit, a basket of fruit can be very special, right? I remember when we were on deputation, we were on deputation, for most of you know that we were planning to go to the mission field at one point in our lives, and uh, we were on deputation visiting 75 churches and, and uh, raised about 10% of what we needed. So we, it was quite clear that God uh, was not calling us to uh, the mission field at that time. Uh, maybe, maybe another day. But uh, when we were on deputation to go to the mission field, uh, we were, were visiting a church one time, and someone uh, every now and then would have a basket of fruit waiting for us 
at the uh, place where we were going to stay. Uh, we stayed in a prophet's chamber, and someone would put a basket of fruit uh, for us to enjoy on our stay and then uh, take with us on our travels. See, a basket of fruit can be very special, and it has a message. And it has a message in our uh, text here tonight. When someone gives you a basket of fruit, it's kind of like a bouquet of flowers. Uh, very beautiful, uh, but I think it's more useful. I rarely would eat a bouquet of flowers, uh, but I'll eat a fruit a basket, a basket of fruit, excuse me. It also gives us a message, though, that someone cares about you. And you notice that here there is a message in the basket of summer fruit spoken of here in Amos. Notice verse 1. Thus hath the Lord showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. Now, first of all, a basket of summer fruit represents a harvest. Uh, it tells us that there, uh, there was a tree that's uh, perhaps... Uh, been producing, and we've gotten the fruit off of the tree. But when it comes to the end of the growing season, and you've picked all the fruit from your fruit tree, uh, and the limbs become bare, and there is no more fruit. And so we say the harvest is past. Uh, there will be no fruit until next year. And so we see that although a basket of summer fruit is delightful and delicious, it also speaks of the end of harvest. Now, a basket of fruit, summer fruit also tells that sometimes there can be rapid spoilage and quick deterioration. Uh, let's say that, for example, someone had prepared a place for some guests to stay in in a preparation. They had put a basket of fruit in their room. And then let's say the guests call at the last minute and they said, uh, well, we can't come because there's been some delay. And so time, uh, the time when they were going to be there comes and it goes and maybe the host forgets the basket of fruit in the guest room. What's going to happen after a while? If days and even weeks go by, the basket of fruit is forgotten. There might be an odor and it might be, not be too pleasant. You see, there's a message in the basket of summer fruit. God gives us a very dramatic, very figurative illustration here. Look at verse 2. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then said the Lord unto me, the end is come upon my people of Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. Now we saw there in chapter 7, in the previous visions of God's judgment, that Amos prayed for the survival of Israel, and God changed his mind and withheld the judgment. And now the basket of summer fruit indicates that the harvest is past. Time is up. The northern kingdom of Israel has come to the end of the line. Judgment will come, and the harvest is a symbolic of that end time, that uh, end of the line. And since harvest speaks of a time of judgment and falls at the end of an age, I think that some of the things our Lord said are misunderstood if one does not understand what is meant by the harvest. Think about this for a moment. I don't know if you've uh, 
uh, thought about this in this way before, but no doubt we have heard many messages, many missionary challenges perhaps from Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. No doubt you've heard those messages, and I've heard them as well. But could it be that our Lord was speaking about the end of an age when the dispensation of the law was coming to an end and Christ was going to go to the cross? He said that he needed harvesters to go out into Israel. You see, after his death on the cross, there's really a different picture. For this age of grace, he gives a parable of the sower. We find that in uh, uh, the Gospels there, in Matthew and Mark. The sower went forth to sow seed, and he said in Mark sixteen fifteen, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And that's a message for our age. God uh, goes out into the world and says, he says, Go God doesn't go out. He says for us to go out into the world and sow the seed. There is a time for sowing the word of God. My business and your business is just sowing the seed. It's the Lord's business to do the saving. We don't save anybody. It's God who saves. We believe that the spirit of God will take the word of God, make a child of God. So we're just seed sowers. Uh, we're not necessarily harvesters. Harvest speaks of judgment. Harvest speaks of the end of the age. But our business today is to sow the seed. That may be something you've never thought about before in that way. Listen, I know I hadn't thought about it that way until I uh, sat down to think about this. And I don't want to discount the, uh, the application of praying for laborers for the harvest. I don't want to discount that at all. But there will be no harvest if there's no planting. If the seed is not planted, there will be no harvest. And we need to realize that God has called us to do that in the age in which we live. Look at verse 3. And the songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day, saith the Lord, there shall be many dead bodies in every place, and they shall cast them forth with silence. The place of praising God will be changed into a, a place of wailing. The place of rejoicing before God will be changed into a place of weeping. The slain bodies will be everywhere. This is a very terrifying prophecy. So a basket of summer fruit, that fruit that was so beautiful and ripe, will not keep for long. And just as the time is short for summer fruit, so was the time short for Israel. The end has come upon my people. Many dead bodies everywhere. They shall be cast forth with silence. Ripe fruit is close to being thrown out. And a similar judgment will be upon rotten Israel. Now, we've seen the rottenness of Israel... Notice something about the corruption of Israel. Dishonesty and cheating the poor in Israel. 
Look at verse 4. Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fall. Is it fall or fail? It's fail. Yes, it is. That little dot on the eye looks like an L uh, on my, in my Bible. Maybe I need to get a bigger Bible. Will ca- cause uh, the poor of the land to fail. Now, after God, again here, has spoken of the rottenness of Israel, he's now speaking of the exploitation of the poor. We need to realize how God feels about the poor of this world. Now, sometimes I think I'm pretty poor. Well, I'm not pretty, but I'm poor, okay? But as I compare myself with many in this world, even here in places of the United States, I really am not that poor. You know, I'm often reminded about, uh, or I often remind people, I'm just a poor Baptist preacher, and if you don't believe it, just come hear me preach on Sunday morning. But uh, in the days of Amos, God accuses these people of making the poor of the land to fail. That is, the poor were brought down to such a low poverty level that they never could escape from it. The poor always suffer more severely in a godless nation, and I don't think anyone successfully would dispute that. Notice verse 5 saying, when will the new moon be gone? That we may sell corn and the Sabbath, that we may set forth the wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit. Again, we find here, if you had been among the people of that day, especially down in the Jerusalem at the temple, you would have wondered what the Lord was talking about. You would have seen them going through the rituals which God had prescribed, but you, God knew what was in their heart. The new moon and the Sabbath were holy days on which business was not transacted. God is saying that even when the rich went down to the temple to praise God, they were so greedy and so covetous that... They were thinking about business the next day. And they were thinking about how they could make money by cheating their customers. Uh, They not only practiced their sin during the week, but they carried it into the temple. And what a picture this gives of Israel in that day. And also a picture of many modern men and women as well. Notice verse 6 that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes and, yea, sell the refuse uh, of the wheat. That they may buy the poor for silver. The poor even had to sell themselves into slavery. That was permitted in that land under the Mosaic system. And they would buy the needy for a pair of shoes. Now, how cheap they were. They would sell the poor, the refuse of the wheat, the leftovers. That means they got the seconds, the leftovers, which an honest dealer would throw away. 
You know, I've always had a problem with putting used items into a missionary cupboard. Uh, you know, saying, well, I don't need this, these clothes anymore. Maybe a missionary can use them. I can't use this. Maybe I can give it to the missionaries. Well, don't you think missionaries would like something new too? Now, I know many missionaries who are very frugal, and they would perhaps go themselves to goodwill, and they would buy something for a small price because they're taking care of the money that God has allowed them to have. But I think we need to be careful that we don't just give them the cast-offs that we have, the worn-out items, and think, well, we're being generous. We're giving these to the missionaries. Remember what David said. He said, Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. You know, it's no accident that the Lord Jesus, when he was here on earth, sat and watched how people gave in the temple. Was that his business? Well, yes, it was. And he was interested in how much, he's interested in how much you and I give to him as well and how much we keep for ourselves. I guess I can identify with Amos here a bit and, and perhaps reason, the reason is because he was a poor man himself. He was just a country, uh, uh, fellow and he, he talks about things I can understand. You see, Amos is explaining why Israel was a basket of summer fruit and the goodness of Israel was just as perishable and just as deteriorated as summer fruit. And one of the evidence of this is the way they treated the poor. So that's the rotting and the corruption of Israel. Notice then how Israel or how God will judge Israel. And we go on here in verse 7 and 8. We notice, first of all, the certainty of judgment. The Lord hath sworn by the excellency of Jacob. Surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall not the land tremble for this, and every one mourn that dwelleth therein? And it shall rise up holy as a flood, and it shall be cast down out and drowned as by the flood of Egypt." The Lord has sworn by the excellency of Jacob. Now, the excellency of Jacob really is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Lord has sworn by the Messiah who is coming. No oath could be taken that is higher than that. Now, notice what it is that he has sworn. Surely I will never forget any of their works. Now, as we've seen previously in this study, God does not forget the works of any of us, whether we're a believer or an unbeliever. And those of us who are believers will one day appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone that received the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. That's 2 Corinthians 5.10. Now in the days of Amos, they had heaped sins up sins unto the day of God's wrath, and God remembered every one of them. Now there are those who think that, well, verse 8, when it says, shall not the land tremble for this? There are those who think, well, this is talking about an earthquake. Uh, That is certainly possible. 
But I think it is the fact that God is coming down very hard on them, and judgment makes the land to tremble. I'm told that even today, one cannot go through places like Samaria and the rugged hill country around Gilgal and Bethel without being impressed by the frightful state of the land. It was once a very fruitful area. Had a great deal of vegetation, including a great many trees. And I'm sure that there are some places like that are very beautiful today, but much of it is pretty barren. And it shows the evidence of the judgment that God had placed upon this land. God came down very heavy upon the land. So the certainty of judgment. Secondly, we see the extent of judgment in verse 9. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. Here, Amos is speaking of that day. And we've already seen, have seen this as a technical term for the day of the Lord. Uh, Generally, it refers to the great tribulation because that's what comes first. The day begins at night as far as Israel is concerned. And Amos kind of gives a mixing of prophecy of the near future and the far distant future. The day of the Lord has not yet arrived. The sun has not gone down at noon, nor has the earth been darkened in the clear day. You see, when Amos wrote this, this was still in the far distant future. Now he turns to a more immediate future for Israel in verse 10. He says, And I will turn your feast into mourning, and all your songs into lamentation, and I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins and baldness upon every head, and I will make it as the morning of the only sun and the end thereof as a bitter day. I will turn your feast into mourning. Now God gave the nation of Israel seven feasts. Uh, The males of uh, Israel were required to come before him for three of those great feasts. Uh, they come. They were to come with rejoicing. It was to be a time of praise and thanksgiving and glorifying of God. And God says that since they have been celebrating the feast, but not giving praise to him, he would turn their feast into mourning. They would come become the very opposite of what he intended them to be. He said, in your songs into lamentation, When God's judgment falls upon them, there will be no more singing, no more joy, only lamentation. You think about the music of the world, and even some Christians today. It was a time when the popular music of the day was the blues, and then followed jazz, and then came rock and roll. Now, do you really detect much joy in that music? Why do they darken the auditorium? Why do they make everything so dim? The songs are, yes, upbeat, and people jump up and down like they have springs in their legs, and yet it's the most mindless kind of motion which requires no thinking. 
That kind of music stimulates the flesh, but certainly does not give them joy. And that's the type of music that the world produces, and sadly, many so-called Christians have adopted it too. The pictures I am showing you there are all supposed to be Christians that are singing. It's a type of music that the world produces, and it's, I'm afraid many Christians have adopted it too. It's a mournful thing, it's tragic. God said, I will turn all your songs into lamentation. I draw your attention to the quote that I gave to you in your bulletins today. There is a generation that worships, sings, lives, dresses, preaches, and believes nothing like historic Christianity, yet they still insist they are Christians. They have no testimony of salvation, yet they still claim to be Christians. They accept pagan practices like laying on the graves of the dead to absorb their power, yet they still claim to be Christians. They use New Age occult terminology when describing their spirituality, yet they still claim to be Christians. They use music that produces an experience that is unlike anything found in historic Christianity, yet they still claim to be Christians. They are loved and accepted by the LGBTQ community, and yet they still claim to be Christians. And despite all of this, the saddest part may just be that that those that should know better either don't have the discernment or courage to cry foul. These people are nothing more than a mixture of modernistic Protestant Pentecostalism, New Age spirituality, and charismatic apostasy. They simply are not Bible-believing Christians. That's quite a statement that I came across. And I think it fits right into what we're talking about here in the book of Amos. He said, I will make it as morning, not a.m., mourn, mourning of the only son and the end thereof as a bitter day. Sackcloth on all loins and baldness on every head are indications of deep mourning. And so Amos tries to capture the depth of the morning with this metaphor. He also, we also remember the connection, and we're getting ahead of ourselves again, but Zechariah uh, chapter 12 comes into play here, which describes a repentant Israel's humble return to the Messiah in the last days. It says in Zechariah 12.10, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one is in bitterness for his firstborn. The extent of the judgment. And then we come to what gives us our title of our message tonight, the famine in the land, the famine of hearing the word of God. The famine of hearing the word of God. Look at verse 11. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, and I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor of thirst of water, for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. 
And they shall wander from the sea to sea and from north even to the east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. In that day shall fair virgins and young men faint for thirst. They that swear by the sin of Samaria and say, Thy God, O Dan, liveth, and the manner of Beersheba liveth, even they shall fall and never rise up again. So is it true that there may come times where there is a famine of God's word, either through neglect or unfaithfulness? And yet, isn't that what Amos is talking about here? It's a problem with the hearer, not necessarily a problem with the preacher. Now, the preacher may have his own problems, but we're talking about the hearer here as well may have his problems. And so as we wrap up our study here in Amos chapter 8, let me ask you four questions. What is meant, first of all, by famine for the word of God? What is meant by a famine for the word of God? Not that God ceases to speak. Does he stop speaking? Uh, is the word of God disappearing? The Bible's, you know, there aren't any Bibles left. Is that what he's talking about? Or does man no longer understand or hear? Is there no message from the unseen? There's no message to the deepest area of life. There's no consciousness of the infinite. No thrill to the voice of God. What is the reason for man's lack? Well, we see here in verse 14. They swear by the sin of Samaria and say, Thy God, O Dan, liveth in the manner of Beersheba, liveth. Even they shall fall and never rise up again. There's a substitution going on here, and it's a substitution of the creature for the creator. What are What is man substituting? Well, he's substituting nature for God. There's a lot of nature worship going on today. You know, uh, Substituting nature for God. They're substituting a priest for God. They're substituting a ceremony for God. And though God's voice is speaking, they never hear. They're stopping short of God. And idolatry is causing a famine. The worship of the wrong thing is causing a famine for the word of God. Now the second question is, what does this famine produce? Well, it produces restlessness. There are many people who are very restless in the world today, and they're searching for something, but it's an ignorant restlessness. They really don't know what they're searching for. It's kind of a semi-conscious restlessness. Uh, You know, people try to substitute uh, substitute something very religious-like for the Word of God. That's why you have people that join lodges and clubs, because they're trying to substitute something. Uh, we, you know, uh, there's a lot of, I don't know if there's many lodges here, a Lions Club or, a, uh, you know, an Elks Club or something like that. Uh, we uh, bought the old Elks Club back in Kansas and, uh, and uh, made it into a Baptist church. <laughs> we had to do some sanctifying there. Had to do some real cleaning out. Uh, but uh, that was the 
the BPOE. Uh, it was called Brotherhood of Something of Elks or something, I think it was. And we were going to leave that sign on the church and say, Best Preachers on Earth, you know. But we took it off because uh, we didn't want any confusion there. But people join those things. But they're doing that to substitute. And uh, uh, they're, they're not uh, hungry for the Word of God. There's uh, uh, Christian science. There's unity uh, uh, groups and so forth. God without government. Sin without guilt. There's a conscience search for, uh, that finds no answer. People are looking always for something new and for something novel. And they search the scriptures not to find Christ, but to find some new theory. And materialism is a a perpetual lust, an unfinished agony of desire. Brings us to the third question, who is affected by the famine? Well, our whole society is being affected by this famine. And it's manifesting itself in our young people what we would today call the millennials who aren't coming to church. We're saying, I, I'm, I'm not interested in church. I'm not here interested in preaching anymore. The prophet speaks of the effects upon the next generation. He talks about fair virgins and young men in verse 13. Those with life all ahead of them And they're fainting for thirst. We fed our young people with hulls and chaff, and no wonder, and we wonder why they're not strong. And people have drinking problems today, and they're often uh, say, I don't need faith in Christ. My faith is in the bottle. But that's a crutch for weak people, and that person has decided that God really doesn't exist. So those are the ones who are affected by the famine, according to verse 13. Now, what is the answer to the famine? The answer is to put away our idolatries. Uh, To quit worshiping and serving the creature. Quit running around after experiences. Seek the Lord and his word until he begins to speak to you through his word. So here in Amos chapter 8, we have this unusual famine. God had given them his word, and they were rejecting it. They had despised it, and they had turned aside from it. God uh, tells, now God tells them that the day is coming when they will no longer have the privilege of hearing his word. And God tells any church and any nation the same thing. If they will not hear his word... After he has given it to them, he's going to withdraw it from them. And I think we're seeing that happen in our country right now. There's been a rejection of the word of God. Many churches have turned to liberalism. And the word of God is no longer preached. Many liberal churches don't have a service tonight. Because they're not interested in preaching God's word. And there's a famine of the word of God. And as a consequence, many churches have closed up. 
Just think about how many Bibles you can find throughout our country. How many Bibles are there in the United States of America? We could, we could fill this room up how many times with the Bibles that we have at our uh, disposal. But who's reading it? Who's believing it? And so I believe we're seeing the beginning of a famine in our own country. And I trust that by God's grace, we not let it be said of Spooner Baptist Church.